This week on the Science of Politics, the roots of the party's racial switch. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Black Americans are the strongest Democratic constituency, while white Southerners are among the strongest Republican groups. But it used to be the other way around. The usual story places 1960s civil rights policymaking at the center of the switch. But my guests today track the important prior history that made it possible in the North and South. Today, I talked to Kenesia Grant of Howard University about her temple book, The Great Migration in the Democratic Party. She finds that the migration north changed the Democratic Party because black voters became pivotal in Democratic cities like New York, Chicago, and Detroit, leading politicians to respond, including new black elected officials. I also talked to Boris Hirsink of Fordham University about his new Cambridge book with Jeffrey Jenkins, Republican Party Politics in the American South, 1865-1968. to they find that Southern Republican state parties became battles between racially mixed and lily-white factions, mostly for control of patronage via national convention influence. The lily-white takeovers enabled early Republican gains in the South. These trends predated national civil rights policymaking and helped explain how we reached today's divided regional and racial politics. Grant found that black migrants made an impact on the Democrats despite their political struggle. My book, The Great Migration and the Democratic Party, Black Voters and the Realignment of American Politics in the 20th Century, is in short a way for us to think about how Black people come into the Democratic Party in a different way. Much of what I was reading when I was in graduate school was about Black people who were living in the South. And some of the work was about how Black folks were coming into the party, but not much of it mentioned the Great Migration at length which I thought was an opening for me to have something to say about that. And so I follow politics from 1915 to 1965 in Chicago, New York, and Detroit. And I question what local elected leaders, mayors in particular, and mayoral candidates are doing. And then I also, different from some of the other work that I saw, look to see what Black elected officials are doing and what they are thinking about and what they care about. I find that the Black folks who were participating in politics in the North engaged in a bit of a struggle. And so I went into it thinking like, oh, surely they could vote in the North. It's going to be easy. And then it turns out to not be so easy in the story. I also find, which I thought was very interesting, that many of the Black elected officials who came to office between 1915 and 1965 were migrants, which I thought was just interesting if you could think about the amount of time that it takes a person, well, I'll talk about myself, the amount of time it took me to register to vote in Washington, D.C., where I currently live once I got here was shameful, honestly. And to think that these folks left these very difficult situations in the South, moved to the North, had to adjust to all the culture and the climate and all these other things and still found time, found time not only to be engaged in politics, but to run for office, I thought was an amazing story and one that should be told. Here, Sink and Jenkins looked at the prehistory of the Republican Southern strategy. So we look at the role the Republican Party in the South played between the end of Reconstruction and the rise of the Southern strategy of Nixon in 1968, which is a time period that people generally don't look at because this is a time period where the Republican Party just isn't competing very well, if at all, in the South. And the reason we wanted to, to sort of look at it anyway is because in this time period, the Republican Party still gave a lot of uh, power to the South at its national conventions. For a good chunk of this period, about 25% of all delegates came from the South. The, the puzzle that, that we sort of started out with was like, why would you as a national party give so much power over really important decisions like who gets to be the president, who gets to be the vice president, our platform, things like that. Why would you give that to a region that is never going to vote for you, that everybody knows is never going to vote for you, and yet you give it that much power? And, and so that's how we got started with it. And then over time, it became a bigger project looking at partly you know, the, the, uh, the, the interactions between the state parties in the South and the national party, but then also uh, at who within those state parties uh, at the local level were actually in charge and what kind of conflicts over control there was. And basically what we found was, one, the answer to the first question is, well, why would a national party allow this is because essentially these southern states became rotten boroughs, that if you are a national party leader, you wanted to be president or you're president, you want to get reelected. You could basically bribe these uh, southern state party organizations for support at the convention. Uh, and because of that, you also wanted to keep them. 
And the second core finding we had was that there was a really major conflict between black and white Republicans who originally controlled all these state party organizations in Southern states and a new group of white supremacist uh, Republicans who, starting in the 1890s, tried to sort of kick the, uh, the black uh, group known as the Black and Tans out. We sort of charted how in each state that conflict played out and also the larger consequences for the party as a competitive electoral participant. Grant wanted to show that black voters mattered to the transformation of the North. I think that this is a bit of a filling in. Uh, at least I came to it as a filling in. I just couldn't really wrap my mind around the fact that the Great Migration was missing from the work. And I thought, surely, and even as I was writing the book, once I was working as a professor, thought, surely I was about to stumble on something where somebody had already done this and they hadn't. And so I think that was an important filling in. I also think that there was an important filling in about how Black people were making decisions and like what happens to movers. So some of the scholars in political science suggest that when you move, if you have strong political opinions, that you take those strong political opinions with you wherever you go. But the message for Black voters was different. The message for Black voters was that they would just take on the political opinions of the Black people who were already living in the North, which seemed a little wrong to me. And so some of the work that I'm doing in the book is thinking about this kind of contextual versus compositional debate that happens in our scholarship where we think about how people's movement changes their politics. And I just wanted to assert that Black folks' movement wouldn't change their politics, that even though Black people who were living in the South could not participate in politics like they should be able to, that they had political ideas, they had opinions, and those opinions and ideas were strong, and that those strong ideas probably came with them to the North and shaped the ways that they participated in politics there. Some increasing Black voter impact was inevitable, she says, but not the way they were integrated. I think the the question about whether Black importance in politics was inevitable is a really interesting one. And, I, and it's interesting, especially because I do this thing where I'm thinking and talking about Black voters as the balance of power. And so at the beginning of the period of interest, they are not really the balance of power in elections. Balance of power, as I calculate it here, which is different from how I calculated in a different piece of scholarship, but we can talk about that in a minute. And so I think, yes, in some ways it's inevitable. In some ways, the Great Migration is happening. Millions and millions of people are coming. And so because the Great Migration is happening and millions and millions of people are coming, eventually it's going to be the case that there are so many Black people participating in politics that you can't ignore them. And so, yeah, some of it's kind of inevitable. But we don't even get that far because some of the politicians are thinking about Black voters even before they're there in the millions, when they are just coming in in smaller numbers. Politicians are thinking about them both in terms of like, okay, well, how can I get these folks to be part of my coalition? But also in some instances, how can I make sure that these people do not participate in politics, do not fundamentally change the way that I have to exist as a politician? And so I think that in some ways it's inevitable, but I think the story kind of can't exist in the way it does. And the party that we see both at the national and at the subnational level would not have evolved in the way that it did without the stories of the people on the ground, be they in parties, be they candidates, be they elected officials, who did the work of engaging with Black people. Hearsink wanted to look at an ignored period of Republicans in the South that built for the future. The traditional way of thinking about it was essentially just like, this doesn't matter. Right. And, and partly this is because we think of political parties as tools that you know politicians use to get elected. And so you've got people are running for office and parties matter once you are a candidate, you're in a ballot. And, you know, if you're a member of Congress or a member of state legislature, being in a party matters, et cetera. And none of that really is happening a whole lot in the South. Like the Republican Party, in a lot of cases, isn't fielding candidates anymore. It's certainly not running real election campaigns. So it's, it's just... As a political party, it's not actually that relevant. So political scientists have largely ignored it. There's like Theo Key as a, you know, the classic scholar of the, the South as a, as a sort of a re- political region, has a couple of pages in a, in a really long book uh, about it where he's just like, well, it's a weird group. It's kind of a cult. It's not entirely clear why they exist. Historians have written a little bit about it in sort of like specific for specific states. There hasn't really been a comprehensive look at the Republican Party as a whole in the region in this time period. 
And uh, what we find is that one, those state party organizations existed consistently throughout the the region in every single state throughout this time period. And two, they matter quite a lot because they had a large uh, say at the national convention. They were part of major decisions. National party leaders always care a lot about the South. They care about keeping their support at conventions. They care about which different party leaders are in charge for these state party organizations and how to get federal jobs to them. And within the states, there's this major conflict along racial lines over who gets to control these state party organizations. They found that white takeovers of Southern Republican parties claim electoral gains, and they did make slow gains. There are white supremacists who are trying to sort of take over each state party organization. Their argument essentially is that as the South increasingly becomes controlled by white Democrats and as they're passing uh, Jim Crow legislation, effectively banning black people from participating in elections almost entirely. The only way a Republican party in the South could be successful as an electoral party is by becoming a white party. So after uh, the Civil War, black people play a really important part in the, in, in, the, in the Republican Party in the South. They make up a large part of the voting public, and they also uh, there are a decent number of uh, black elected officials, black party leaders, etc. As we're getting into the late 19th and early 20th century, these white supremacist Republicans are saying, we need to get rid of all black people in the party and we need to replace them with an all-white party because that's the kind of party that can actually compete electorally. And they're sort of hypocritical in making that argument because what they really care about to a large extent is controlling patronage, getting federal jobs and being able to sell them and make a lot of money out of that. But in the book, we actually test their claim, which is if the Republican Party becomes more white in each individual state, does that actually help them electorally? And the answer seems to be yes. As the number of black delegates in the party, which is the best metric that we could come up with of sort of how black or how white a state party organization was at each given moment in time. As that uh, number goes down, so as the party becomes more white, in the sort of Jim Crow era, the party does better electorally. Both see their projects as part of a new school extending our understanding of how the parties switch their regional and racial coalitions back further in history. I am definitely in the new school. When I teach it, I tell my students like, okay, well, here's the old school and here's the new school. And it's definitely, it's, at, it's issue evolution versus the kind of Eric Schickler group of folks who are thinking about this as a slower moving process. I am very much taken by this slower moving process thing. And I think probably got there, not because of the political science literature, but got there because of the history, got there reading about civil rights and seeing that these people were working on this stuff for a long, long time. And so they are working on it for a long time. The party is changing slowly. I'm motivated by and I think sensitive to the the new work that talks about kind of the bottom up change as opposed to the top down change. And you can see that because the, the work reflects it. Right. I'm writing this book about mayors and what's happening at the local level and how that eventually changes the national level. The book is an outgrowth of the dissertation. And so you don't you don't see it in the book, but there's a national piece here, too. And I'm basically arguing like, yeah, this local thing happens and then national parties respond. And so I'm definitely in, this, in the group of folks who think that party change was slow, that it happened over time, and that the issue of evolution is probably not the best way to think about it. Just how long of a project the, the Southern takeover by the Republican Party has been and how it wasn't just a situation of like, we tend to think of it sort of as, as the Democratic Party in 64 passed civil rights and therefore it all ends. And that's not entirely true because Democrats still do very well in the South in congressional elections for a long period of time. But it's also not true in that there was a lot happening before then that played into what happened afterwards. And, and sort of understanding American political historical development sort of requires looking at all those, those components. Let's dig into the details, starting with Grant. She found that black migrants were half of the new black politicians in the North, but largely had the same outlook. I was first surprised by the number of migrants who were elected to office. I just was curious in general about what Black people were doing in elected office because in many of the political science stories and much of the literature, we hear about civil rights and we hear about Black people, but the Black people don't seem to have a bunch of agency. And so I wanted to know, okay, well, who was elected and what were they doing? I This thing about half of them being migrants turned out to be a surprise to me. I did not expect that. And so once... I saw that they were migrants. I questioned whether the migrants would have a different approach to politics. And I found out that they kind of didn't. 
it turned out that Black people, whether they were born in the North or born outside the North, were fighting for the same things. Everybody was trying to end discrimination. Everybody wanted to have fair employment laws. Everybody wanted to have fair housing. And so it seemed to me, or I supposed, that migrants might have a different idea, a different approach to politics, a different way of being, but it turns out that they actually worked very closely with their Northern-born counterparts to get things done because the struggle was the same for everybody living in a Chicago, New York, or Detroit, and was not entirely different for the migrants. With one small exception, there are some migrants who I don't write about at length here, but who deserve recognition, who move throughout the nation over the course of a year with the planting season. And so there was one instance where I saw a migrant in New York who was fighting for legislation at the state level to protect the people who were moving up and down what we now know as I-95 to do the planting in various states. And that was the one instance where I saw a migrant standing up for migrants and seeking legislation that was specifically about migrants. But again, much of the work was about living conditions in these Northern places and fighting to make sure that what it meant to live in the North was good for all Black people, not just for migrants or not just for Native-born Black folks. Unions tried to build a biracial coalition in Detroit, but backlash white voters developed quickly. And I think this Detroit is a star because it just, it reminds me so much of politics today. And it reminds me of politics today because I think then, like now, we see people making what I would say are not really helpful decisions for themselves. And so in Detroit, it's the case that the unions are attempting to organize their workers and the unions are seeking to have it be the case that working class Black people and working class white people work together on class issues and work against this ruling business interest in Detroit in order to get things done, to get progress, to get economic relief. But we find that the business owners and the people who are running the government in Detroit figure out pretty quickly that they can keep these white working class voters as part of their coalition if they hold up the banner of segregation. If they say, you know, a segregated community is going to infringe on your rights as a white man and you don't want to have black kids in school with your white kids, be sure to vote for segregation over everything. And it seems like, or I find that the folks in Detroit take that message to heart and everything else is kind of set aside in terms of progress in that city, certainly in terms of racial progress toward the goal of making sure that the city stays white and that these neighborhoods that are segregated remain segregated in the schools and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought that was really interesting. And again, something that I didn't know before I started doing the work for the book and something, again, that I think is like telling about politics today. I think there are many instances where Americans share more, agree about more, you know, would be better served by working together than working apart, but that we get caught up in racial stuff. And to be frank, I think we get caught up in the protection of whiteness in ways that harms Black people, but also harms white people. Black women had more success where party bosses were weak in Detroit, but black men candidates did best in Chicago. Many of the black women in the story who are elected to office get elected in Detroit, which again, interesting. Detroit ends up being this really interesting place that I did not expect to be so interesting. And I think one of the reasons that black women are able to get elected in Detroit more so than they are able to get elected in New York and Chicago is that there are fewer people in the way, so to speak, that Detroit doesn't have a party. They, The leaders of Detroit decide early when migration begins, not just because there are Black migrants coming, but also because there are white migrants coming to the city, that it probably be in the best interest of the business lobby to reorganize their city charter so that they eliminate parties and eliminate these single member districts that used to comprise their city council. And so that city ends up with an at-large system and no parties, effectively, which I think leads to a situation where individuals can run for office kind of 
in a place that's closer to the people. They don't have to get the buy-in from the various layers of a party organization as they do in Chicago or as they do in New York. They can decide for themselves that they want to run, run and win, which I think makes it possible for many of the people who get elected in, not many of the people, but some of the people, a larger number of the people who get elected in Detroit to end up being women. The rules matter thing becomes important too in Chicago. So although most of the women who get elected get elected from Detroit, the largest number of Black people who are elected to the positions that I count during this time, which is basically city council, the legislative positions, so city council, state legislature, and Congress, they come from Chicago. Chicago has this very large number of Black people who are elected to political office, and they get elected earlier than they do in some other places. And I think that's a function of the fact that Chicago has this very strong party system, but Chicago also has this very clear single-member district city council and this very clear way of choosing these cumulative voters in the state legislature that makes it possible for Black folks to because they are living in a segregated city, get elected from these seats that represent these segregated areas. There were Black Republicans as well, but migrants moved to fewer places with Republican traditions. I went to Syracuse for my graduate work, and in being in Syracuse, kind of talking to folks about this work was cautioned by the folks at the church I attended while I was there, like, hey, while you're telling this great migration story, just note that not all the people who were participating, not all the migrants who participated, participated as Democrats. And so the Black people in Syracuse were telling these stories about back in the day, so to speak, when Black people used to be Republicans in Syracuse. And this story that they're telling me about back in the day is like the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. It's not back in the day like Reconstruction. And so for sure, there are some places, I'm also like thinking about Memphis, where there are Black people who participate as Republicans. And I think it's important to note, and I'm sure your listeners already know this, but it's important to note that when we think about Black partisanship at this time, it doesn't look like Black partisanship today. And so today, if if the Democrats start to dip below 90% support from, from Black people, it, like heads would spin about what is going on. But it doesn't really look exactly that way during my period of interest. During my period of interest, the Black vote is really kind of up for grabs and Black voters are kind of waiting to see what might happen before they make their decisions about who they are going to support. And in some instances, they make decisions that politicians don't anticipate about who they're going to support. Or in some instances, they might have been supporting Democrats at the local level, but decide to support a Republican or get upset with the Democrat at the local level and support the Republican at the local level and then go on and vote for the Democratic presidential candidate. And so the Republicans are present in the story. They they don't show up as much in, in the book because I thought that there was like more action, more of a story to tell on the Democratic side. But surely as much as the Democrats are vying for Black votes, so are Republicans. Democrats had to get out of their horrible image for these Black migrants. If you go back and read what Black people are saying during this period, some of the older Black folks who even are moving to the North are saying, look, I would never vote for Democrats. It's not a thing. I don't think that the Democratic Party should ever have our support. They are racist currently. They have been racist in the past. I will never do it. And so many of the people who are advocating for this Democratic participation are younger people who are saying, listen, you know, I know that you have this negative image of the Democratic Party in the South, but the Democratic Party in the North is variable. And so it's necessary that we give them a chance. We should hear them out. We also see like a shift in Black leadership where they are saying that it's important to put the race first and party second. And so this means, you know, I know that you're trained not to vote for Democrats. I know that you don't believe in the Democratic Party. You don't think it's a good thing. But here, they seem to be thinking about us. At least they're talking to us. At least they're engaging with with us. At least they're giving us things. And because that's happening, it's necessary for you to vote for them, even if it's not a thing that you're used to, you know, kind of hold your nose and do it. And so I think it is the case that the the party, they kind of evolve together. The party 
begins to do things to signal to Black voters, hey, we're a safe place to be. Please come support us. And I think Black voters do, you know, go on and support them in part because the party is uh, giving them things that they have asked for and doing things that seem right, even if they don't always get it right. And I want to be clear that they don't always get it right. They often make promises that they don't keep. And they often do things that are symbolic uh, that are a, a little better, a hair better than what the Republican Party has going on, but at least an attempt. As black politicians made their way up local, state, and national offices, the party slowly changed. I think Adam Clayton Powell will be a good example of talking about how black folks end up getting representation in Congress because he's a person who goes through pretty much all the ranks of that city. He is elected at the local level first, runs for office at the state level, and then is eventually elected to the Congress. And so Black folks end up getting elected that way. There are also a bunch of folks who get elected to Congress from Detroit. Not all of them go through the city council first, but they end up getting elected that way as well. I think when we think about like civil rights and Black folks as they participate and as the party responds to them, it's also important to think about like what happens at conventions and what kinds of interactions members of the party have with the local elected leaders. And that many people who are elected to office, Black and white, at the local level are signaling to the national party. It's probably signaling to the national party that it's probably a good idea to begin to embrace civil rights because if they don't, they're going to create problems for folks down ballot. And the people down ballot don't want to have these issues with Black voters and don't want to have a loss of support because the National Party is continuing to take these positions that are sympathetic to Southern racist interests. Black voters were also attending to changes in the South. I think what's happening in the North and the South are very related. As I mentioned before, if you are a migrant, you're leaving the South and going to the North. And I think taking some ideas with you from the South to the North. And as I mentioned, taking some ideas about like what the Democratic Party is or is not with you and taking some ideas about what the Republican Party is or is not with you and having some expectations about how that stuff is going to show up once you get ready to go away. But I also think that it's important to the extent that the Black people who are living in the North, especially those from the South, have the South and what is happening in the South at the forefront of their minds when they're making their own political decisions. So especially if you're a Black person running for office, you have to be thoughtful about like what's happening in the South and how your attempts to get civil rights for Black people in the North might influence the South. And you have to like be vocal about the fact that you don't like what's happening in the South. And so I think these things are very connected because I think Black voters are paying attention not only to what's happening in the cities where they live, but paying attention to the national story, paying attention to an understanding that these fights for discrimination in the North will hopefully one day mean change in the South. Here's Sika Jenkins combined qualitative history with quantitative data to investigate the early Southern transformation, finding some idiosyncrasies. We started all this as just a historical qualitative story where we wrote an article in, in 2015 where we looked at national conventions, how did the South play into that, and, and we wrote an article, and, and that was relatively straightforward. And then as we were sort of continuing talking about it and thinking about it, we came up with using the ancestry data, partly because a, a reviewer had, had suggested it, and sort of figured out that we could actually get a data set going, which is always exciting. And trying to sort of merge the two things was difficult because on the one hand as we were writing it we wanted this to be sort of the book that you look to for this topic right we didn't want it to sort of like the you know marginally cover some elements uh we wanted to sort of give us a full history and a full assessment of of the entire region on the other hand that's a lot of time in a lot of states so that that became sort of a, a complicated element to it the way we ended up writing it and setting it up was we have a sort of a quantitative chapter that looks purely at the data of the, the race of the delegates and how that affected election results. And then subsequently, we use that data as a descriptive tool to sort of help us chart the specific state histories. So for each individual state, we have a case study, sort of, where we look at the history, how it developed over time and the specific conflicts that played out. And we can use the data both as a check on our data to make sure that we actually get it right, which we do. Like we can see sort of like when there are decreases in, in the number of black uh, delegates in some cases 
reemergence of black delegates and sort of connect it to specific moments in history that sort of make sense. And also use it as sort of like a guide as to when do we think the activity is happening? Like what is happening here and why, you know, why are these things playing out? And as you noted, a lot of it is sort of idiosyncratic in that there are specific moments that happen or specific events that happen that affect the outcome of, you know, to what extent there's a black representation and how high is it that really aren't sort of like structural so like one example is Arkansas has a black and tans organization until 1912. And there's a, a family that basically runs the party. And uh, one guy gets kicked out, his nephew takes over the party, and he's a lowly white guy. And so he kicks out all black people. And so for like two convention years, there's zero black delegates in Arkansas. And then we see the numbers go up again. And so we were like, you know, why are there suddenly new black delegates? And so we looked into the history, and it turned out that that nephew just died. And his uncle basically was like, oh, then I'll take over again. And so he came back in and he brought back some black delegates. And so that kind of stuff is just like historical luck, right? It's, it's not uh, anything structural. And so in, in writing the book, we really did struggle with trying to identify to what extent are there real themes here across the states? And to what extent is it sort of based on, you know, these small events that can have really big consequences? They do not buy the traditional racist story of Reconstruction failure, but they did find that Republicans' initial efforts to build multiracial coalitions were not successful. It's hard to imagine, I think, how Reconstruction could have worked, because in the end of the day, it just it, it, it required uh, building a coalition of uh, a much broader coalition than I think the Republican Party was capable of creating. And, and we do talk a little bit about, not so much during Reconstruction, but after Reconstruction, during the 1870s, 1880s, that a number of uh, Republican presidents really tried quite actively to try to sort of come up with a way of appealing to white Southerners and trying to sort of come up with a way of, you know, reaching out to those kind of voters who were clearly not Republican voters who are not interested in the party. And like, what can you do to bring those people in? And had they been successful, you could have imagined a different type of uh, American history, right? If, if the South had actually been a competitive two-party uh, system throughout the 19th and 20th century, that probably would have been interesting, but it, it just doesn't work. And you also see in some cases where whenever um, those presidents got a sense that they were not doing as well in the North as they wanted to, they sort of retorted to bloody shirt rhetoric, meaning they went back to talking about the Civil War, talking about how the South was bad, et cetera, which undermined any attempts at, at actually changing something in the South. In terms of the black and tans, one thing that I think is interesting is sort of the, the, the counterfactual of whether, you know, we, we're seeing these uh, lily white groups or these white supremacists take over these state party organizations starting in the 1890s up through the 1910s, 1920s, and in one particular case, 1960. It would be an interesting counterfactual to see what would have happened if that hadn't happened, right? If those white supremacists hadn't tried to take over the Republican state parties and they had remained a largely black organization across the South. Because one of the arguments we're making in the book is that that Lily White takeover is essentially sort of a necessary condition for the Republican Party to become competitive later on, where essentially once the Democratic Party starts to shift on civil rights, starts to not become as good of a match anymore for white Southern voters, those voters need a place to go and they can go into the Republican Party in part because those state party organizations have all become entirely white and have been for a long time at this point. Had that not happened, it's not entirely clear where they would have gone. And maybe it would have been a third party, or maybe it would have been some kind of biracial coalition of both parties. But that's sort of an interesting counterfactual that uh, there's no way to test, but could have been interesting. They measured black and white control of the state parties to track changes and their effects. The conflict between the black and tens and the whites is something that uh, there has been some attention to. Like uh, Haynes Walton Jr. Uh, wrote a book about it in the, in the 70s, but since then, not as much. And, and as we were sort of digging into this more, we were trying to figure out, one, how can we actually know how, you know, where in the sort of history of that conflict a state is at a given moment in time, like how black or how white is a party in Alabama or Arkansas or Florida in 1916, 1920, 1924. And the metric we came up with was that because at this stage, convention delegates are sort of the prize. That's the important part. You that's the goal of sort of why these parties still exist. And in this time period, the, the National Convention publishes a big sort of book of transcripts of each uh, national convention. So every four years, there's this huge book with transcripts of all the meetings and the votes and all that, and also a list of all the delegates. 
And so we had uh, for each state a list of names and uh, usually their hometowns. That's about it. And we went into Ancestry.com, which is sort of a, a, a search engine for you know people trying to you know look up their family trees and all that. And we used that to sort of search for each individual delegate and try to find and match them to their original census form. And once we did that, which we were able to do for about 80% of the delegates uh, from the South, once we did that, we were able to identify their race. And so that allowed us to say for each presidential election year, what is the percentage of black delegates in each state across time? And so that change also allowed us to then test that core Lily White argument at the time, which was if we take over and we make the party more white, that means we're going to do better electorally. And as you noted, there's sort of a, a core difference there between whether there is or is not a Jim Crow law on the books. So in the period before Jim Crow laws, where in most Southern states, black voters are sort of the core base of the Republican Party there, as the party became more white, voter support actually declined. So it seems like black voters were actually paying attention to this. After Jim Crow and after black voters are essentially banned from participating in the elect electorate is entirely white. As the party becomes more white, the, par the, the party actually does better. So it performs better in presidential elections, gubernatorial elections, state legislative elections, etc. And so the takeaway point there is that we do think that the voters are actually paying attention and are sort of aware of it. And if you look at like state lo sort of local newspapers, there's a decent amount of coverage of state conventions and who's going to the national convention, things like that. So it's, it's certainly possible that people are a little bit aware of it. And that there was actually some effect in line with what the Lily Whites were arguing, which is white Southern voters in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s aren't going to vote for a party they perceive to be a black party, but they're more open to voting for it if it becomes a white party. Now, does that actually win them elections? No, it doesn't. But we do think that it sort of creates this necessary condition where once the party becomes white, it becomes you know a possible home in the future uh, for those voters, which seems to be what played out. The main game here was state party leaders trading presidential convention votes for patronage jobs. As these Southern party leaders and their delegates go to a national convention, they have a vote. But beyond that, they don't really have any reason to care that much about who the nominee is and how, you know, how the election plays out and all that, because it doesn't really affect them. With one exception, which is that if a Republican president is in the White House and you are the party leader of a Southern a state party organization on the Republican side, then all the federal jobs that go into your state are jobs that you essentially control. And in practice, what that means is that you can sell those jobs to the highest bidder. And so that sets up sort of an interesting economic financial system whereby you have these state party leaders who, you know, don't really have much else going on. And every four years, they're basically sort of negotiating with different uh, uh, presidential hopefuls about who are we going to support at the convention. And if that candidate wins and subsequently becomes president, you know, are we getting the jobs and are we going to be able to sell them? And the amounts are pretty considerable. Like we, we talk about it in the book a little bit in the 1920s, where there's a couple of Senate investigations into sort of selling of offices in the South. And the numbers that come out is, you know, you can sell like a, a postmastership for like $20,000 in today's money, which is substantial. And so we're seeing these sort of like negotiations play out where a person who would like that job needs to talk to the local Republican Party leader who can then get them in charge with touch with another Republican Party leader. And that eventually gets them the job. Hoover and Eisenhower made some early Southern progress, but it was partially dependent on racial change in the parties. So in the case of Hoover, he's running against Al Smith. Smith is a governor of New York. He's the first Catholic on a national ticket. And that really alienated and, and sort of angered a lot of uh, white Protestant voters in the South who otherwise would have voted Democrat, but sort of in a protest vote, uh, go for Hoover. Hoover, while in office, tries to sort of, he certainly interprets it as like the people love me and I'm you know going to use this to rebuild the, sort of the Republican Party in the South. That doesn't really work out, partly because he runs into some issues with the remaining, very few remaining black and tense organizations and being unable to sort of kick those leaders out. And of course, the Great Depression hits and that sort of takes away any progress that might have been made. In the case of Eisenhower, I think it's, again, partly a personality issue. The fact that Eisenhower, of course, military hero, the man behind World War II victory, universally admired. And so that opened up, I think, some voters to vote for him uh, in the South. Additionally, once we hit 1952, right, we're already seeing the Democratic Party switch on civil rights. 
it's in 48. You have the Dixiecrats running against uh, Truman, as uh, Eric Schickler has argued in, in racial realignment. There's also you know, increasingly in sort of Democratic State Party organizations outside of the South, those start to take on and bring in uh, civil rights as sort of a core liberal value. And so as that is happening, I think Southern voters are becoming sort of more open to voting Republican. One of the reasons why Eisenhower sort of that doesn't automatically carry through right away, maybe is Brown v. Board, which certainly within the RNC, they were very concerned about. So in the 50s in the RNC, they have a big operation focused on bringing in the South called Operation Dixie. And they see Brown v. Board as a really terrible event that sort of really undermines a lot of the work they're doing. But as part of sort of like a broader process, it seems to sort of be sort of a part of that, that the movement towards the Republican Party becoming competitive and later dominant in the South. Hearsink says these histories are part of the groundwork for later Republican success. I think it is very much a first step. You know, the, when you're looking at things like Great Migration and the, the the creation of sort of the suburbs in the South and all that, those are, I think, fundamental to helping shape what happens next, which is one, the fact that the Democratic Party becomes a more a more complicated coalition, essentially, where prior to the New Deal, it's, it's a majority Southern party. Once the New Deal successes begin, the party becomes much bigger and becomes to, starts to rely on Black support in elections outside of the South, and that makes it almost impossible to sort of maintain the party as is. Certainly the the, the rise of the suburbs and the creation of sort of like a new set of uh, white voters in the South really mattered in terms of like how that Republicans were able to sort of go in and win those voters while not losing support outside of the South. So one of the things we, we look at is like the 1964 election, right, where you have the Republicans really target the South very aggressively, and it kind of works well in that Goldwater wins a couple of southern states, which is nice. But of course, he does terrible everywhere else. The sort of the working version of it becomes the Nixon type of talking about things without making it explicit about race, talking about things that appeal to suburban white voters across the country, not just in the South. So those things are all fundamental and crucial to how it every how everything played out. I think what we contribute to the story is that uh, it's hard to imagine a black Republican Party in the South as the party you know, that exists there, being able to sort of make all that possible, right? If the, you know, Virginia Republican Party or the, you know, the Florida Republican Party is dominated by black politicians and leaders, it's harder to imagine a situation where white voters who feel like they no longer have a home in the Democratic Party as it comes to embrace civil rights would then move into the Republican Party. And so we think it's sort of a fundamental first step. Losing black Northern voters was also key to the later moves in the South. By the time that the Democratic Party really ceases to be completely, you know, at its, its core strength in the South, the Republican Party has also already lost black voters, right? And, and, and so had we been in a world where black voters were not fully democratic, essentially outside of the South, and had the Republican Party in the South still, you know, contained a considerable uh, black element, I would imagine that the Republican Party would have fought a lot harder to keep black voters in. But given the fact that they had already essentially lost them, and they did try in a couple of cases, like throughout sort of the 70s, 80s, 90s, even the 2000s to some extent, there have always been Republican Party leaders who sort of stepped up and said, it's really important that we try to target black voters. Like Bill Brock, who was our RNC chair in the late 70s, made it really one of his core fundamental goals to try to sort of reach out to black voters and bring them in. And that always fails. And one of the reasons why he fails is that the party doesn't really want to change its positions on policies. It just want, essentially thinks that as long as we just go out to uh, black voters and we talk more to them, then, then we're going to win them. And that just doesn't really work. But the fact that the Republican Party in you know the 60s, 70s, doesn't have to rely on black votes, isn't really receiving black votes, certainly made it a lot easier for the party to say, well, then we're going to you know, target white voters in the South because it's not hurting us and it's going to help us you know, not just win presidential elections, but also win majorities in the House and the Senate. Grant finds that white backlash was also a slow-moving process. The stories that I tell in, this, in the book bear that out. And so it's not like all these black people came all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, there's so many black people. And then, you know, white flight happened. I think that this is a story that is moving kind of slowly. And I think that we see white people adjusting slowly. I think that they are 
living in the cities. I think that whiteness as a concept is coming into kind of some being where there are more people who might not have been considered like white or able to participate in the same way before black people get to the North now get to be a part of like a white community. And so I think all of that's a slow process. All of it happens and unfolds over time. And so, yes, there is white backlash, but I don't think that white backlash just starts as a response to rioting. I think it's present as part of the entire story. Hearsig says the odd Democratic Party coalition was always destined to fall apart. But the rise of the Republican Party in the South was not inevitable. The part that was probably inevitable was the idea that if you have a Democratic Party that includes both Southern segregationists who, in terms of elected officials at least, basically exclusively care about segregation, right? You know, Dixiecrat, Democratic politicians, that was the core thing they cared about. And you also have a substantial part of the party that is relying on black votes outside of the South. You can't really maintain that marriage forever. Like that, that was always going to fall apart at some point. And the exact timing of it is sort of like the, you know, the early 60s as sort of the fundamental moment where it all broke down. Maybe that is, you know, based on in, you know, individual actions and choices and the civil rights movement and, and, and um, you know, unique historical events. But the broader fact that the Democratic Party couldn't beat his big tent of segregationists and black people together in one party, that, that kind of seems inevitable. I think the, the subsequent events of the Republican Party becoming uh, an almost entirely white party that has its core base in the South, if you had told any Republican this a century ago, they would have laughed at you. Like that, that was certainly not what they expected to see happen as, as, a, as an outcome. I think the inevitability of it partly is that we have a two-party system. And so if there's a core sub part of you know, voters and electoral votes and, and all that, that one party is sort of abandoning then the other party nearly always will jump in and try to get them. But I, again, it's it's not something that if you had told anybody, you know, a century ago, you know, in 2020, this is how the two parties uh, fall on, uh, in terms of uh, geographic division and what their electoral coalitions look like. I think a lot of people would have been very confused by that. Republicans took a while to get their messaging right to get Southern white voters. Earlier on the time period we're looking at, it's essentially all race. Like race is a really fundamental thing that drives a lot of the choices that people are making. The thing that's sort of interesting, I think, if you look at the 1950s, 1960s, where, where the Republican Party is sort of trying to figure out how it can compete effectively in the South. That's sort of the part where they're really trying to balance sort of like how do we appeal to white voters without being completely racist because we're that's not who we are and we don't want to be that, but we don't want their votes and how can we do that? And it takes them a while to sort of come up with a winning formula that allows them to sort of do well in the South, but also do well everywhere else. And so in the 1940s, you have an RNC chair who, you know, gives a talk in, I want to say Alabama, I might be wrong about that, but he basically goes down South and it's like, you know, the Dixiecrats, they want states' rights, we want states' rights, you know, basically being like, we're a Republican party, we're for states' rights and small government and things like that. What you subsequently do with those states' rights, who cares? We're not going to talk about that. In the 50s, there's a clear issue of terms of like, how do you combine what the Eisenhower administration is doing on, on certain issues regarding segregation with appealing to voters? In the early 60s, they're trying to sort of like partly ride an anti-Kennedy wave, which works pretty well for them, but then also run into the, you know, if you go full on opposition to civil rights, how does that play out in other elections? And it just takes them a while to figure out how you can appeal to voters in the South without hurting yourself elsewhere. At the same time, the fact that the Democratic Party is moving far left really helps the Republicans too, because as the Democratic Party becomes more liberal and sort of alienates a lot of those Southern white voters, you don't necessarily have to make the argument anymore that it is about race. You can just make economic arguments and voters will sort of find their way to you because you are essentially becoming the only available alternative party uh, for them to vote for. Today, black voters might have had more influence if they had stayed in the South or moved there now. But Grant says it's hard to see the alternative where civil rights advance without the move north. I think it will be interesting to imagine a counterfactual where like, black people don't leave and, and things evolve in the same way. So black people don't leave the, the South in large numbers. And so Alabama and Mississippi become like these powerhouse black politics places. I think that that would be interesting to see. 
I think we would have to see it as fiction, as a counterfactual. I think that Black folks leaving the South is a necessary condition for progress on civil rights. And so I don't know if we could run a counterfactual where the South changes and becomes a place where Black folks can have political power without that struggle that happens in the North and without experiencing the loss of that group of people who moved in the Great Migration. But I think it'd be interesting to see kind of outside of myself, you know, as a movie or something. In terms of today, I think there are a couple of things happening that we should be thoughtful about. The first is return migration, which, as you say, I mentioned in the conclusion of the book. And I think return migration is important because I'm not sure that Democrats are really thoughtful about Black folks movement and how Black folks movement is going to impact their electoral college chances. And we know for a fact that the number of Black people coming into the South has been increasing since at least 1970. So it's like as the Great Migration is ending, this return migration begins with Black folks going South. But I think it's going to be really important to see how that migration changes Southern politics. And I think we're getting the first flashes of it now. I think a Stacey Abrams and an Andrew Gillum is only possible because there are some kind of changes happening in the populations of these states. And an important part of that change is the change of Black folks coming into the South. Black voters are strategic, and Grant says that means Democrats should not take them for granted. I think the party at least thinks Black voters are captured. I'm not entirely convinced that Black voters are captured. I think that what it means to participate and what it means to be captured might look different. And that's a little bit of what I'm trying to signal here. It's like the party assumes that Black people don't have anywhere else to go, which is true. Like Black people are probably not voting. They definitely not voted for Donald Trump in large numbers. Some percentage of them will, but most of them won't. But I think the party forgets that Black people could stay home. And I think that if there's anything to know from this book is that Black people are actually thoughtful and strategic voters and that they are sensitive to what is happening in the political environment, and that if they get a leader they trust, especially a Black leader they trust, that that Black leader could change the way they participate in elections. I'm thinking about Adam Clayton Powell again here, who breaks with the Democratic Party because he thinks that the party is being too sensitive to Southerners in 1956, and tells Black people in Harlem, like, don't vote for the Democrat, vote for the Republican. And there's a major uptick in the number of Black people who do vote for Eisenhower in that election as a function of Adam Clayton Powell's direction to do so. And so is the, are Black people captured? I'm not really convinced that, that they are entirely captured. I think that they're, I think the party at least thinks they are, and that's problematic. But I think that the party, again, should be careful that Capture doesn't always look like showing up to vote for you. It could be the case that Black folks just choose to stay home. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Please review our recent episodes at niskanencenter.org or anywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks to Kanishia Grant and Boris Hearsink for joining me. Please check out The Great Migration in the Democratic Party and Republican Party Politics in the American South, 1865-1968, to and then listen in next time. Music